0: My name is Eva, and today we conclude the story of the 16th-century witch trials in Iceland. Last time, we left off in 1625, after the execution of Jón Runvalsson, one of the first to be burned at the stake under the new Lutheran directives. On that previous episode, I recounted the historical and political background leading up to the witch trials. And on this episode, we shall explore the social and cultural context of the 1600s Iceland in which the witch trials took place. Traditionally, historians define the political structures and cultural movements of the 17th century Europe as being part of the early modern era. This era includes such movements as the Renaissance, bigger wealthier cities, a burgeoning merchant class, the discovery of the world, etc., etc. Iceland at that time was still very much defined by a medieval structure. It was still a very rural society, which incorporated long-held feuds between families who lived in villages or farmsteads presided over by elders or the local lord in a strict societal hierarchy. Iceland was, even in comparison with other contemporary countries, poor. Iceland suffered from recurring epidemics, natural disasters which were only compounded by the Little Ice Age, a period of decreased temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere between the 16th and the 19th century. The church in Iceland played a central role, insomuch that the priest could well function as the religious overhead, as well as the physician, and the church itself was used as an assembly hall, where people came to pray, yes, but also to trade gossip, to trade goods, and to settle matters between villages. In this world, Icelanders lived a life in which they were continually contending with a whole string of calamities, from famine to volcanic eruptions. And in such a world where magic was believed, the seed of fear of witches was not planted in barren ground. Moreover, the old Norse gods, who were still remembered in Iceland, well, they had never actually been of benign character. For all the wonderful majesty of Loki and Thor, they were not exactly gentle gods. It was into this atmosphere then that witch fear was introduced. And while it was the new Western European perception of witches as being lawfully recognized as living beings doing weird things with the devil, the reporting of witches to the authorities, that was done by Icelanders themselves, denouncing a neighbor, condemning a stranger. All this happened as fear of the supernatural was given the expression and the name of witchery. Could it be, after all, that all those mysterious forces surrounding me did not strike me by chance, but was in fact the malicious act of my cruel neighbour? Such was the thought that was born. From the onset, the prosecution of witches was conducted within a maze of unclear judicial and linguistic boundaries, which resulted in many different interpretations of the spirit of the law, and this was compounded by the lack of access to the letter of the law, and by that I mean the actual letter and language of the law. Iceland's Altingi, famed then and even more now for being the oldest parliament in the world, functioned as a judicial assembly. But the old laws of the Althingi were written in Old Norse or Icelandic, and these laws sometimes stood in contrast with the newer directives of the Danish Witchcraft Act, which was imposed on Iceland by the Danish authorities in 1630. As you recall, by 1600, Iceland was part of the Oldenburg monarchy, of which Denmark was the supreme ruler. These newer laws were written in Latin a language which the Danish-educated clergy and Danish-educated bailiffs mastered, but which local village elders or poorly educated clergy did not. This resulted in village elders and churchmen trying out different laws to fit their intended punishment. Records of the time show that some who were condemned as witches were tried by al Law, in which an accused could hope for acquittal by producing 12 witnesses who would swear to that person's innocence. Other people accused of witchery, they were accused by the new directives, in which a bailiff might take inspiration from the book, Malius Maleficarium to find hidden signs on the body to ascertain whether a person was a witch or not, which would have been a foreign notion to the old laws. Now, if a person was condemned to death, a person's conviction was by law meant to be confirmed by the Altenki before being carried out. But contemporary records show that many people were burnt at the stake by the local judiciaries and only afterwards would they then send their judgment on to the Altinki, who then could do nothing but confirm it. This put a great power in the local bailiffs. Soon, a very clear geographical pattern emerged in connection to the witch trials. In the central and in the western part of Iceland, where the bigger towns had been established years ago, where religious and judicial authorities worked very closely together to question witches, in these areas the percentage of witches put to death was markedly higher than in the rest of the country. This pattern manifested itself all over Western Europe during these times, from the Spanish Inquisition to the English witch trials. Conversely, in the harsher environment of the east and north of Iceland, where the farmsteads were farther apart, where there were fewer houses of law, where the old traditions of viewing magic as more connected to wisdom and healing remained an integral part of belief, in these areas, Witches were questioned, but fewer witches were ultimately condemned. One tragic case which highlighted the difference between East and West occurred in 1678. In this year, a mother and her son were burnt at the stake for the crime of sorcery. The mother and son were poor, starving peasants from northern Iceland, who, like many others before them, had chosen to migrate to the western coast when food and work became scarce. They departed their own homestead in 1677. Their journey from north to west took the better part of a year, crossing mountain paths and traversing dangerous waters. It would have been even for the best travellers, a harrowing journey full of perils. They arrived in the west in the spring of 1678. The son, who had grown up on an isolated farm, had no knowledge of the new winds of witch fear that had swept over Iceland, and he did not realise the cause of his new neighbours' suspicions. When they questioned him on how on earth they had survived the journey across the Nordland Mountains. The son, who in some accounts is reported as have been simple minded, boasted that his mother had saved them by Geldur. Geldur is an Icelandic term for magic. Now, by this time Geldur had come to be associated with devil's magic or possibly bad magic. However, The older meaning of Geldur was actually wise spell or wise learning and it was connected to wisdom. It is possible that it was in this meaning the son used the term Geldur, but unfortunately he used this particular term in an area which had grown to distrust strangers and distrust magic. When the local vicar's wife, Helga Bjornsson, grew sick, accusing fingers, amongst them the vicars were pointed squarely at the mother and son, for had the son not already boasted of using magic. By April of 1678, the mother and son were formally charged with sorcery, and by August of that year, mother and son were burnt at the stake. Contemporary records show that all in all, six people were burnt at the stake in this particular village in the course of several years, all accused of having caused the sickness and relapse of sickness of Helga Bjornsson. She evidently did not get better from people dying. This case was unique in that the mother is the only recorded instance of a woman in Iceland being burned as a witch out of all the 120 people who were condemned to the stake from 1625 to 1683. All over the rest of Europe, the pattern was elder women living in isolation were the predominant targets of the witch hunts. So why such a difference in Iceland? Well, historians point to two possible answers or assumptions. As mentioned, the old view of magic was connected to learning, wisdom, and healing. Wisdom coming from the sagas and learning coming from the old texts, which required literacy. In Catholic medieval Iceland, there had only been two schools of higher learning. And these two, as well as the convent schools, only admitted men, meaning that these founts of knowledge were overwhelmingly preserved within a male sphere. And while magic had been associated with women in early Norse tradition, by medieval times, rune magic and geldur was associated with men. So in the case I mentioned earlier, there would have been a double suspicion on that mother for having practised geldia, as this was seen as knowledge possessed by men. So we may assume that men were more visibly practising magic spells and therefore a more visible target. We might pair this with a second assumption of why trials in Iceland were predominantly about men. In Iceland, farmsteads and villages were far apart, and while women stayed within the domain and surroundings of their homes, it was men who were the wanderers, who were the traders, who were most likely to stick out in a new parish. The population of Iceland was around 50,000 at the time but it did not include a surplus of elderly women living alone in a large village or a small town, as they might have been found in smaller towns in other parts of Europe. These elderly women, if they were alive, were more often than not incorporated into a farmstead, so they were simply not as visible in the cultural landscape as elsewhere. Now, all this aside, while this may give an explanation as to why it was men targeted in the witch trials, it cannot be denied that the witch trials in Iceland closely mirrored practices that were seen in other countries, where petty jealousies, enactments of vengeance were cloaked in the denouncement of a neighbour, Whose farm thrived a little better than one's own, whose horses were a little swifter than one's own, or whose children seemed to survive a little better than one's own. People were denounced when one person suffered ill luck which they could not find a reasonable answer for. And such were the circumstances of one of the most famous witch trials in Iceland, a witch trial called the Shikabur Witch Trial. Jorn Magnússon was a priest in Shokabur in West Iceland. He had for some years suffered from stomach aches. In his youth, he had thought it a medical condition and sought cures for it with traditional healers. But by 1654, under the influence, no doubt, of the new views on magic, he turned his back on the advice of healers and became increasingly convinced that his sickness had been brought on by sorcery. He finally accused two members of his congregation, a father and son, both named Jorn Jonson, of having bewitched him and causing disturbances in his household. The local sheriff agreed to hear the case, But it was only after considerable pressure from the stomach-troubled priest that the sheriff had the father and son condemned as witches and burnt at the stake. The priest was then, as per tradition, awarded the bulk of the deceased earthly possessions, not least their land. However, the priest suffered a relapse, which convinced him that sorcery was still afoot. He then denounced the daughter and sister of those formerly accused, and he accused her of continuing the sorcery of her dead family. She defended herself vigorously and managed to have her case brought before the Altinki rather than only being heard by the local sheriff, who probably was more than relieved that the burden was put in somebody else’s hands. The Altinki heard her case and they acquitted her of all charges. As per tradition, it was then she who was rewarded with the bulk of the priest's property as compensation, including the property once owned by her dead family members. The priest was left humiliated but, astonishingly enough, completely undaunted and went on to write about his sufferings in which he maintained his claim of demonic magic. Yet, as the still stomach-troubled priest wrote his book, attitudes were changing once again in Iceland, with more people being acquitted of sorcery than condemned. There is no clear answer as to what happened or what caused the decline in witch trials in Iceland. Decline followed the pattern elsewhere in Europe in which magistrates, sheriffs and others increasingly demanded more evidence and less conjecture before condemning to death. In Iceland, the magistrate Tolafur Kotson, who presided in parts of western and northern Iceland in the 1660s and who was known for meting out harsh punishments for those accused of witchcraft, resigned his duties in 1679 and this marked a steep decline in burnings at the stake. So perhaps he was part of it. By 1686, the Danish authorities ratified the law, making it absolutely compulsory for sentences of death not to be carried out until confirmed by the Danish court in Copenhagen. And the Danish court in Copenhagen never confirmed any death sentences after 1686. Now, this was not necessarily done out of goodwill. That unclear process in Iceland of accusation and judgment had completely backfired on the plans of the Danish authorities who had envisioned a uniform law across Iceland which would make it so much easier to rule. Now the laws of the Altingi were somehow getting mixed up with their own laws instead of being clearly apart and small villages they just turned to their elders for the sake of clarity. This made Iceland unruly. Some historians also claim a generational divide, pointing at the natural decline, which is my polite way of saying pointing at the deaths of those who had found zeal in witch-hunting through the book Maleus Maleficarium. They were now dying out and their successors seemed to be far less interested in sorcery with their interests more directed on the emerging Age of Enlightenment which advocated rational explanations and more or less scorned supernatural conclusions. 1692 marked the last death sentence to be passed in Iceland but the condemned man was transported to Denmark, where he lived out his life and his sentence was never carried out. But Iceland was and had been forever changed. It was not a return to the old ways, though the country continued as a rural society for centuries. So life went on in Iceland, no easier than before. In the 18th century, a new calamity hit Iceland as the volcano Laki erupted, killing around 25% of the population due to salvation after 80% of the livestock died after eating contaminated grass. This calamity pushed a sense of nationalism forward and urged to rid Iceland of its Scandinavian rulers rather than a resurgence in witchcraft. Today, Iceland's population is still heavily concentrated around the larger cities in the western part of Iceland, live in that area. Nowadays, it is not just the western part of Iceland, but the whole of Iceland that has become an attraction for adventure-loving tourists. If you ever have the means and opportunity to go to Iceland, I would absolutely highly recommend it. And no, I am not endorsed by the Icelandic Tourist Board, nor am I in fact from Iceland. But I have been there, and that natural beauty of this country is astonishing. All those wonderful, beautiful images you have seen of it simply do not do it justice, not to its fullest. There is, if you should ever go on an adventure in Iceland, an overwhelming emotion of nature being the premier force in a country with its own rich history. I hope you liked this episode. If yes, please consider leaving a like wherever you get your podcasts, as it really does help with the algorithms and getting the podcast seen. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.